Welcome to Present Value, a podcast created by students at Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management. I'm your host, Harrison Job. If you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review and share it. Maureen O'Hara is the Robert W. Purcell Professor of Finance at Cornell. She holds a PhD in finance from Northwestern University and a professorship at the University of Technology, Sydney. O'Hara is the author of Market Microstructure Theory, a groundbreaking book on the topic. She also researches the effect of ETFs on market stability and transaction costs in Bitcoin. Her most recent book, Something for Nothing, explores issues of ethics in finance. O'Hara served as the first female president of the American Finance Association in 2003. She's also served on the board of the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association and has consulted for companies such as Microsoft, Facebook, and Merrill Lynch. Professor O'Hara, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Harrison. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start the interview by delving into your work on market microstructure theory. Can you give our listeners some more background on the topic and explain how you became interested in it? So market microstructure is really about the design of stock markets and trading systems. And I'll tell you, Harrison, absolutely no one other than me and a few academics was interested in this topic until the stock market crash of 1987. The issues we're really interested in, microstructure researchers, are the fine details of the trading mechanisms. When you think about trading, Most people don't think about it at all. You just send an order into your broker and somehow it magically gets executed and now you're either the proud owner or the proud seller of something. But in finance, we're interested in how markets work because that's how capital gets allocated throughout the economy and it's how risk gets shared. So when you design markets and trading systems, you want them to provide liquidity and price discovery. Any MBA student who sat through a finance class knows that you hear over and over again about market efficiency. But how does that happen? How does the price get information impounded into it? It it just doesn't magically appear. It, It happens through a variety of processes, but one of the most important is trading. And so how you design the market, whether you design it so that people can see information or not see information or the rules of how you can put in orders or not put in orders actually influences the prices that come out. And I got interested in this area kind of through the back door. I uh, came to Cornell to be the banking professor, and I still teach our financial markets courses. But banking's hard. If you think what a bank does, it buys one claim, a deposit, and it sells another, a loan, and they're different. And so I was writing research on banking and aspects of banking when I first came to Cornell. And then someone pointed out to me that I might find market maker interesting because a market maker buys and sells the same thing. And I always thought, well, that does sound interesting. Maybe if I figure out what market makers do, I'll be able to figure out what banks do. And so when I was first here, I started getting interested in the structure of markets and how they work. Can you give a few examples of some specific rules or structures of a market that can affect market outcomes? So the microstructure of the market is really the rules and the structure. So what are some of the rules in a market? Well, you know, does a trade have to be reported after it's been made or not? 
right? In bond markets for a long time, bond market trades weren't reported at all. So you never knew, for example, when you did a bond trade, whether you were ripped off by the broker-dealer or not because you couldn't see the other trades, right? We now have something called trace data, so in fact, bond trades are reported. So some of the issues that really have to do with this is what is observable in a market, right? Do you know who the counterparty is on another side? Sometimes if you know who the counterparty is, then this idea of a statistical victim goes away. Are transparent markets always better? Well, not always. One of the interesting things we've seen back in the 1980s was on the NASDAQ, when the dealers could see each other's quotes, then they could collude, right? In general, we think transparency is good, except if I know what you're doing and you know what I'm doing and we agreed to collude, this is great. Whereas before, I didn't know what you were doing, so I couldn't collude. So there are a lot of features of markets that you can change. And there are lots of trading behaviors that you can be aware of. The big issue in high-frequency markets is something called spoofing, which is I turn in an order and then I immediately cancel it. And you say, well, why are you doing that? Well, one of the things you may be trying to do, remember, these are all being done by machines. So machine turns in an order to buy, then cancels. Turns in another one to buy, cancels. And you can start playing all kinds of games. So for example, suppose that I'm a broker dealer and I have a client who wants to buy the stock. And this isn't a stock that trades very much, so I'm going to put in something called a limit order that says, well, I'm going to buy the stock at 32. But at the moment, there's no one willing to sell it to me, so nothing's happened. You are a high-frequency, bad high-frequency guy, to be distinct from a good high-frequency guy, of which I think most of them are. But you're a bad guy, and you set up your computer to start putting in all these orders that you'd like to buy at 3201, or you'd like to buy at 3202, or 3 or 4 or 5, and you put them in, you cancel, you put them in, you cancel, you put them in, you cancel. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, I have competitors who want to buy. So I'll actually end up raising the price that I said I'm going to buy at. So I was going to buy at 32, now I'm going to buy at 3205. And then you're on the other side and you're going to keep playing this game. You're going to keep putting in orders and canceling, and putting in orders and canceling, and putting in orders and canceling trying to get me to keep raising my price. In effect, you're having me bid against myself. And then what will you do? At some point, you'll hit my my bid. I'm going to say buy now at 32.15. And I'm going to sell to you. And then what? I, I'm going to go back down and I'm going to start playing these games again. Right? I'll turn around and sell it because I got you to raise the price 15 cents bidding against yourself. That's spoofing. And spoofing is a form of manipulation. The problem is it's very difficult to actually prove in current markets because something like 99% of all orders end up getting canceled in high-frequency markets. So when you're just looking at the market, can you tell that this person is spoofing or, or not? There's a lot of issues that arise. How can people apply your market microstructure theory to better understand markets, increasingly dominated by high-frequency trading and machine learning technologies. Let's take a step away first from the individual person. Our markets today are so efficient that the individual really doesn't have to care how they work, right? The market microstructure is really about the plumbing, how it all fits together. And from a retail trader's perspective, it, it just doesn't matter. You will get fabulous prices. Your transactions costs will be very low. 
our, our markets work great. Where the issues become important is for the institutional traders and for the regulators. So you want markets to be fair. If they're not fair, people won't want to go in them. And we saw that after the financial crisis. A lot of people got convinced that the markets were rigged and they didn't want to play anymore. And when that happens, it hurts everybody. And so the work that I do and the work that people like me do is we try and figure out what are the best structures that lead to liquidity and price discovery. And then we also work on issues such as what's the best way to regulate markets? Because while in some areas of finance, the notion of regulation is anathema, in banking and in microstructure, you, you cannot just let markets go without regulation. It, it's not a good thing. And so that's a lot of what my work is useful for. It helps inform the regulators, and it also helps inform people who have to trade large amounts of stock. So some of my work has been on optimal trading algorithms. Some of my work has been on how do you make markets more stable. Those are the sorts of issues that I find really interesting. You alluded to both good and bad high-frequency traders. Can you walk us through some of the pros and cons of high-frequency trading? So I think, you know, Michael Lewis wrote that book and told everybody the markets were rigged. I think everyone who worked in the markets really found a lot they did not like about that book. I would be the first to say that I think he, you know, he's a novelist and he wrote a book. You know, the markets are not rigged. It is true that the high-frequency guys have tremendous speed advantages. You can never compete with them, but you probably shouldn't be. You know, are there problems in the markets? Absolutely. And, you know, I think the SEC and, and the regulators work hard to do that. The high-frequency guys have made markets incredibly efficient because in the old days, if you think about how people would trade, they would think about a stock, right? And there's someone who's a buyer and someone who's a seller, and everything was done on a stock-by-stock basis. In the high-frequency world, it's different, right? You will have market makers now will put in a bid in one stock and an ask in another, and they will move liquidity across markets. And that's extremely valuable because it means that it's a little bit like having water seek its level. High-frequency guys take the impediments out so the water gets exactly even across everything. But there are downsides in the current markets. Um, small stocks, for example, generally are fairly illiquid. High-frequency guys don't even like them. There's not enough volume to attract them. So we have a lot of issues in the market that we need to think about. Do we have the right structure? to trade the illiquid small stocks. You know, do we have the right regulatory structure to keep the high-frequency guys from misbehaving? I think in the beginning, their technology was far superior to the SEC's. And so I think in the beginning of the high-frequency era, there was a number of things that really needed to be corrected. The SEC caught up, though, because they bought the same tools that the high-frequency guys did. So from my perspective, I think the markets today are extremely good. So regarding high-frequency trading, we know that it dominates trading volume. We seem to have a situation, though, where the market needs to cater to two segments. One, high-frequency traders, and two, everyone else. What are the key differences in designing a market around each party, and how do you see markets striking that balance? 
to be fair, I think that the way we've struck the balance is that small traders do extremely well in these markets. You know, the transactions cost to being a, a small trader now are as low as they've ever been. I think for the markets, the small traders you want to cater to are the people who want to buy stocks, not the people who want to trade in and out of a stock 50 times a day. You know, in the old days, they were called day traders, right? Day traders cannot compete with a high frequency. But day traders weren't really particularly helpful to markets anyway. The high frequency traders are, for the most part, many of them are providing liquidity to the markets. They're, they're market makers. They're buying in one market and selling in another. You want them to be able to provide that liquidity and price discovery. You want retail traders to face a market that's fair and is inexpensive to transact in. I think we're very close to that. One of the things that I think retail traders have to understand is that you're not going to be able to compete with a high-frequency guy, and you shouldn't. That's not what you can do. You know, I, I was a pretty mediocre tennis player in my day, and I was never going to make it in Wimbledon, right? I accepted that. I, I tried to find people who weren't better than I was, and that became increasingly harder to do, so I switched sports. Uh, retail traders should not be doing this stuff. Our markets now are not designed for retail traders who want to be many high-frequency guys. It's designed to provide great execution for retail traders, and it's designed to allow sort of the big guys, who are both the high-frequency guys and the institutions, to be able to interact in a fair way. You know, I don't think it's perfect, and the markets have their issues. But for retail guys, it's, it's a great time to be a trader. You know, to be honest, I'm not even sure how much retail traders should be in individual stocks because ETFs are a better way to transact. But, you know, if you like buying individual stocks, go ahead. I understand there's been a surge in popularity in these exchange-traded funds, otherwise known as ETFs. Can you explain, A, what an ETF is, and B, how have they been evolving? I'll tell you, in my own case, I don't buy mutual funds anymore. I only buy ETFs. So if you think about what a mutual fund is, it is a collection of stocks. Typically, we think of it as actively managed. So maybe you're working at Merrill Lynch, and you're a portfolio manager, and, and you have ideas about this portfolio, and you're picking stocks, and then I buy the mutual fund composed of your stocks. And if I decide I want to sell the mutual fund, then I turn in an order, and at the end of the day, you know, I can get out of my mutual fund. I won't have sold it. Mutual funds are great, but they have a number of problems, and the most important one is you cannot control your tax position. Suppose there's a 1,000 of us who own this mutual fund, and now 200 people decide they want to get out. Well, to give them their money back, the mutual fund has to sell, you know, one-fifth of the fund. And that's going to trigger consequences for everybody else who's in the fund. So one of the downsides of mutual funds is that you cannot control your tax position. And also, you're dependent upon the idea that the manager of the mutual fund has able somehow to outdo the market. An ETF is a different beast. In the way it works, they're exchange-traded funds. So you can trade in and out of your ETF all day long if you want. They're listed on the stock market just like 
General Motors or Ford is listed. Interestingly enough, if you look at the 10 most actively traded uh, securities on the stock market, my guess is on any given day, at least nine of them are ETFs. So, you know, these ETFs trade more than Microsoft. They trade more than all the stocks. And why is that? Some of them are very large. The largest is SPY, S-P-Y, and that is essentially the S&P 500. So it's a giant portfolio composed of all these stocks, but you can trade it as if it were a single stock. You can trade in and out of it all day long. And so if you decide to trade your shares of SPY, it doesn't affect me. And that gives you a lot more control of your tax position. It gives you something far more liquid. The problem with mutual funds is that sometimes they can be greatly affected by these assumptions, and, and uh, that can be a problem for you. In the beginning, the ETFs were based on very large baskets, like the S&P 500 or the Dow or something like that. Nowadays, they're ETFs on everything. Right? Sadly, the whiskey and spirits ETF closed in June, but uh, you can buy ETFs that are just based on stocks that deal with obesity. You can buy an ETF that is based on things that millennials like. There's one that's got the ticker symbol Gen Y. Uh, so now, in many ways, ETFs have evolved into something very different than just a tax-advantaged, more liquid mutual fund. Now, ETFs have become, for many people, the building blocks. So if you think of the old days, your building blocks might be individual stocks, and you'd build this portfolio, and that would be what you'd hold. Now, people, they build a portfolio, but it's a portfolio of ETFs. So ETFs have become a very significant and important development in the markets. Let's move our conversation now into financial ethics. I really enjoyed reading your book, Something for Nothing, which explores ethics and finance. So how has ethics come to be such an important focus of yours? And what kind of ethical issues most interest you? So for years, really since the first day I arrived here on campus, the first class I taught, the class I teach every fall is called Financial Markets. And in financial markets, we really talk a lot about how do the banking systems work, how do markets, capital markets work. And I really enjoy it. It draws together the banking background I have with, with other areas. The challenge in finance is that modern finance really changed dramatically, starting in about the mid-'80s and then accelerating through the 90s and the early part of the 2000s. And the markets today are just very different than they were in the, quote, old days. And I, I think they're better. So there's no lamenting the loss of the old days. I think markets are great. But they have a number of features in them that are very different. And one of them is that we can, using arbitrage, recreate all kinds of things. So I'll give you a simple example. Suppose that you're an institutional investor and you want to hold AAA bonds. You know, you're very safe. You're an insurance company. That's a great idea, long-term, all that, except there's only three companies that have AAA ratings. There are not enough AAA bonds in the United States for one insurance company, let's sure all of them. But here's the good news. Using some of the tools of modern finance, in particular credit default swaps, we can synthetically create a AAA bond. So I can synthetically create an IBM bond, even though it's not the IBM bond that was issued by the company. This is a really good thing, and it demonstrates the power of arbitrage, that we can use 
the techniques of modern finance, of which arbitrage is extremely important, and some of the new tools of finance, which include things like interest rate swaps and credit default swaps, to create synthetic versions of things that exist in the market. So at any given time, you will have the synthetic bond we're going to create and the real IBM bond trading and arbitrage, that is, buy low, sell high, will keep those prices together. The challenge of all this is that now so much of what we do in the markets is constructed from mathematical models, and you never see the person on the other side. And one of the things that became apparent during the crisis but had been building for quite a while is that I think people lost sight of the fact that on the other side of contracts are people. So starting really prior to the crisis, I've always had something in the financial markets course where we'll talk about a bad example of someone who took advantage of someone. And I think that's helpful. But over the years, this interest got bigger and bigger. About 10, 15 years ago, I started teaching a joint class with the law school, a law professor named John Macy, and we did something called Issues at the Crossroads of Law and Finance. It was a real fun class to teach. But we focused on the fact that the legal structure of the markets dates from the 1930s and 1940s, but modern markets, the tools that we now use are really a product of the 80s and 90s. And so you have all these areas where the law and the markets don't actually fit. And part of the challenge is that the law just lags markets. And so the notion that ethics doesn't play a role is just not right. And so I started in fin markets putting in more and more little vignettes, little cases, trying to illustrate some of the trade-offs that came about where ethical and unethical behavior wasn't always as obvious. So I think my interest in this is, is reflective of just how the markets have changed, and they've changed in ways that can make the ethical dimensions harder to see. So maybe we can actually talk about some of those vignettes. One of the more interesting examples you've used to illustrate the issues around ethics is J.P. Morgan Chase's $400 million payment in 2013 to settle allegations that they'd manipulated energy markets. It is extremely complex, but I'm wondering if you can give an overview of the case without any diagrams. So we're, we're going to just cut to the, to, I'd say the chase, but that seems a bit uh, <laughs> out of character here. The J.P. Morgan Energy Ventures case, which is in the book, I particularly like because I actually think that the behavior of J.P. Morgan Chase there is exactly what we teach our MBAs. And yet, J.P. Morgan was manipulating markets. So, you know, the issue here is when do you go from making the market more efficient to manipulating the market? I mean, we have not spent much time in the MBA talking about that, but it's extremely important, and that's what J.P. Morgan, I think, ran into. The basics of this case are that during the crisis, J.P. Morgan took over the investment bank Bear Stearns when Bear Stearns failed. So the regulators needed someone to take it over. J.P. Morgan Chase was willing to do so. So they take over Bear Stearns, and they now become the proud owner of 28 electric generating plants, which Bear Stearns had owned because Bear Stearns was a big player in energy finance. The bad news is these are very inefficient plants. No one has put money in them in a long time, and so you know they operate, but they're high cost. J.P. Morgan Chase Energy Ventures tries to figure out how do you take 28 money-losing plants and turn them into something profitable. 
And they realized that the mechanism that was used to buy and sell electricity from the generating plants was extremely complicated. And it was run across the country by various groups, but the particular one that I focus on in the book is one that's run in California by the California independent service operator known as CASO. CASO is a nonprofit, so they come up with all these rules to buy energy from the power plants, which in turn will be sold to the retail distribution networks. J.P. Morgan could have spent a ton of money to upgrade all these plants and made them more efficient, but that would have been expensive. Instead, they opted to hire a variety of quant types and try and see if they couldn't maximize against the algorithm used to price the electricity that was being bought from the power plants. So they basically turned, if you will, to financial engineering. And their goal was they really wanted to get paid through a variety of mechanisms such as ramp up and ramp down rules and various other sorts of idiosyncratic nature of these auction rules to basically get paid but not have to actually produce the electricity. And at this, they became stunningly successful. And now, some of the rules were designed because the problem with electricity is it can't be stored. So when you have a really hot day in Southern California, you need to bring these old plants online. But old plants take a while to ramp up and ramp down. So there are all these rules, like if you get a bid to deliver power accepted for one hour, then actually under the ramp up, ramp down rules, you have to get the next two hours as well. So an example of the way that J.P. Morgan Energy Ventures exploited this in their attempts to make more money was they would offer to deliver power from 11 to 12 at night for minus $30 a kilowatt hour. They'd pay you to take the power. And then the next day they would bid to deliver power between midnight and 2 in the morning at $999 a kilowatt hour. And because of the ramp up, ramp down rules, that bid had to be accepted. So everything J.P. Morgan did was within the rules. But any normal person listening to this says, wait a minute, you know, you gave it away between 11 and 12 and then you came back and wanted almost $1,000 a kilowatt hour when the average price was 35 That seems outrageous. Well, it seemed outrageous to the regulators too. And J.P. Morgan ultimately had 11 of these strategies and the regulator one by one would object to them and they'd stop and then they'd create a new one and then eventually FERC sued them for market manipulation. So I think one of the things that's interesting about this case is I would say J.P. Morgan was arbitraging against an algorithm to buy power that was stunningly complicated and probably can't be made much simpler. And it it requires people to operate with good faith. They didn't actually want to produce electricity. The last thing they wanted to do was produce electricity. They wanted to get all these various compensatory payments. And so one of the things I've been trying to do here at Cornell in my own teaching and in the book is to make people think about where are the ethical dimensions here, right? When you're busy trying not to sell power and get paid, maybe that isn't exactly playing by the spirit of the rules. So those are the sorts of issues that I think are, they're complicated. But at the end of the day, markets only work if people trust them. And markets only work if people recognize that you have a responsibility to do something other than just make money for yourself. 
And that's, I think, one of the themes that I'm trying to develop in the book. Another example you discuss is Goldman Sachs purchasing bonds in a Venezuelan oil company, bonds issued by that country's central bank. This brought up criticism that Goldman Sachs was helping to prop up the authoritarian regime of Nicolas Maduro. Can you walk our listeners through this case and lay out the ethical dilemmas? I think this is a really interesting case. It's one of those cases that happened in the market where you have the opportunity to buy some sort of financial product. In this case, it's bonds. And these bonds are actually not being issued by the Venezuelan government. They're actually currently held by the central bank. So one argument you can make is, well, the bonds are already out there, right? But at the time these things were being offered in the market, most people, institutional investors, had walked away and said, I don't want anything to do with the Venezuelan bonds because they're supporting or at least they're enabling a corrupt regime. And Goldman took a different approach and said, well, these things have a 40% yield given where they're trading and uh, you know, they're already out there. And so they decided to buy them. And it, I think it's a really interesting question. And one thing that we talk about a lot in the finance and ethics class I teach, that sometimes people will say, well, you know, the bonds are already out there and you know, someone's got to own them. And in this case, they were at the central bank in Venezuela, but the central bank is being used as a piggy bank by the government. So it's not like our Fed where it's separate. It isn't. I mean, they just, that when you give the money to the central bank, that money goes directly to um, the government. And in the market, these were called hunger bonds because of the argument that the government was impoverishing the people. And so buying them was helping this government do that. I think the issues for Goldman are interesting ones, and it's something that I think we need to think about. Just because it's profitable doesn't mean you get to do it. You have to think about the implications. And one of the things that I think is very important to understand is just because something's legal doesn't make it ethical. The law always lags the, you know, the ethics. Finance is so innovative that our laws are always based on what used to be and not what is. And so I don't think you can just say, as long as it's legal, it's okay. And of course, Goldman ended up owning these bonds. They actually put them in a number of mutual funds they advised, because they couldn't actually, turns out no one else would buy them from Goldman. And they've lost a lot of money on them. And then subsequently, the US has imposed sanctions on Venezuela, so now it's illegal to do that. But I think for, for all of our students at Cornell and for people in the financial markets in general, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And particularly in finance, I think you have to really seriously contemplate what do you think is the ethics of buying these things? You know, someone asked me and they said, well, you know, they're already out there. And now that Goldman owned them, why shouldn't I as a mutual fund manager buy it from Goldman? After all, it's 40%. Don't you also teach us that we're supposed to do what's right for our, our you know, mutual fund investors, a 40% yielding bond is fantastic. But I think the answer to that is to think about the fact that, you know, suppose that someone has shot an elephant and taken its, its ivory. I mean, do you get to buy the ivory? Because after all, the elephant's already dead. And I think the answer is no, because, you know, it's true, you can't bring the elephant back, but you want to save the next one. And I think the same thing is true as you think about these issues in markets. Just because Goldman bought them, 
and they're now no longer owned by the central bank in Venezuela, doesn't necessarily mean that you don't face the same ethical questions about whether you want to buy and support these bonds. So these vignettes are very complex, but they seem to give rise to really interesting ethical issues. Is there a certain type of issue that you like to use in your books or class discussions? I like things that are not straightforward, right? I mean, a lot of people think that in finance, people are either crooks or they're not. There are crooks, and there are people who would never do anything crooked. But those, to me, are not interesting. To me, the interesting questions are what some people would call the gray areas. It's not always obvious where some of these things are. You you really have to go back to kind of your principles and what you think should happen. If you basically can take advantage of somebody, doesn't mean that you should. And I think part of what I wrote the book for is the book is focusing on the role of arbitrage. And when I can create synthetic versions of things, it means that if you have a law that says you can't issue a contract that looks like X, well, using the tools of finance, I'm like, no problem. I will create something that has exactly the same outcomes as X, but it'll be composed of two or three different pieces all put together, and arbitrage would essentially mean they're going to be about the same price. So I can completely get around the law. And then you have to ask yourself, just because you can doesn't mean you should. There's a reason why that law is there. Just because you can get around it doesn't mean that you should. And that's one of the things that motivated me on this book. Some things on paper don't look like they violate any laws, but in principle, that's exactly why they're they're operating. So, you know, you really have to be responsible for what you do. So I'd really love to transition to this idea that finance simply attracts unscrupulous people. The financial fraudster theory, as you like to put it, is a common and widespread trope. A recent Harvard-Harris poll showed that a whopping 67% of people surveyed disagreed with the statement, in general, people on Wall Street are as honest and moral as other people. In your view, what factors make financial professionals susceptible to ethical lapses? So much of what we do is in markets. It's, you know, if you and I are negotiating something one-on-one, I see who you are and you see who I am. And, you know, we may be involved, for example, in a series of transactions. So if I take advantage of you in transaction one, you're not going to deal with me in the rest of these transactions. Modern finance is evolved in such a way that an awful lot of what we do is in markets. So I actually don't know who's on the other side. I'm selling, you're buying, I don't know who you are. This transactional nature has replaced the relationship nature. And in a transactional thing, maybe I'm going to be doing the same transaction tomorrow, but I may not be with you. And so there are two factors here. One is that instead of a real life person on the other side, you've turned into a statistical person. I don't know who you are. And All the research shows that statistical victims don't elicit the same empathy on the part of people as real victims. So part of it is this anonymity in markets. Part of it is that a lot of what we do in finance is so complicated. The guy who structures a deal is not the salesperson who who actually sells the deal, is not the managing director who's in charge of the whole thing. And there can be a number of reasons why I just assume someone else looked into these ethical issues. I mean, it's not my job. And then, of course, the other challenge in finance is large financial institutions are stunningly complicated. They can have thousands 
of off-balance sheet entities. So complexity, impersonality, statistical victims, there, there are lots of reasons why I think you don't see the problems. If you saw them, you might say, oh, that, that I'm, not, I'm not going to do that. But there are a lot of reasons why in modern finance it's not easy to see them. And I also think the business schools bear some of the blame. We teach finance the way you would teach engineering. You want to build a bridge, here's how you do it. I don't think we have spent enough time talking about, you know, finance can be a source of good. We can make people, society better by using modern finance. We don't teach it that way, but we should because if you did, then it would make it clear that your goal is to make society better and to make markets better and behaviors that detract from that, which are easy to do when you have markets and it's so anonymous, would become glaringly apparent that they're not acceptable. But we don't teach it that way. But I think, I think we're moving towards that. There's a fascinating study that you reference conducted by German behavioral researchers that examined the difference in decision-making between individual and market-based transactions. Can you walk our listeners through that study? I think it's fairly illuminating. It's an intriguing study. So it involves laboratory mice who have been used for various experiments, and now those experiments are over. So the question is, what are we going to do with the mice? And they offer individuals the following option, that they can give you 10 euros and a mouse will be killed, or you can forego the 10 euros and the mouse will be spared and he'll get to live out the rest of his life riding around in his cage and being taken care of. So they have this experiment where they have this group of individuals and they're all offered this choice and you know some of them opt to take the money and some of them opt to spare the mouse. Then what they do is they take the individuals and they break them up they assign half of them to be buyers, half of them to be sellers. They give the sellers property rights to the mouse. They match up a buyer with a seller and they say, okay, if you can agree how to split 20 euros, then we'll give you the 20 euros to do that, but then the mouse is killed. Or you can say, keep the 20 euros and spare the mouse. When it's in a market and you and someone are negotiating, it turns out that the number of people who kill the mouse and take the money is enormously higher. And the numbers are something like 72% take the money in the market setting and only 40-some take it in the individual setting. And it's an intriguing little study, right? I mean, I want to be clear that the ethical consequences surrounding mice I know are of interest to the PETA people, but um, that's not actually what I think is important about this. I think what's important about this is that the issues surrounding the fact that the mice, the mouse would be killed seem more salient when it's you making a decision and there's the mouse. When it's you and I, Harrison, deciding if we're gonna, how we're going to split the 20, the mouse becomes collateral damage, and we don't seem to have as much trouble killing off the mouse. So I think that that speaks to one of the challenges. Modern finance is largely taking place in markets. You know, whoever's on the other side is kind of unknown to you, the outcome of these things becomes very impersonal. And we already know, you don't have to be in finance to have this problem. We know that statistical victims don't seem as real as real victims. I mean, why, why was Volkswagen willing to cheat on all their emissions tests, you know? Or why did Ford create 
you know, the or whoever it was, the Pinto that had exploding gas tanks because, you know, who, whoever's hurt by this, you don't know who they are, and they don't seem real. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the bigger challenges in finance. I don't think worse people go into finance. I think it's just harder to see the harm in market settings and in impersonal settings. And that just means we have to work harder. We have to become more aware. What do you make of this common idea that an executive's absolute loyalties to their fiduciary duties or obligations to maximize shareholder value? It seems like this attitude often leads people into unethical conduct, as if it's almost an excuse. I think you raise a good point. I mean, you know, I think companies owe it to their owners to try and do the best they can, but they they don't have to maximize profit on a daily basis or even a quarterly basis or even a yearly basis. You want companies to be investing for the long term. And companies that, you know, cheat people tend not to be particularly good investments, right? If you look at the financial system, the amount of fines that have been paid by financial firms is just stunning, right? It's the hundreds of billions of dollars now. And, you know, that didn't maximize shareholder value. That, that didn't help the shareholders at all. It may have helped the individual managers whose incentive contracts were based on reported profits, not on net profits after you had to take out all the fines. So I, I don't really think that's the issue of, you know, I have to I have to do this because I have a duty to my shareholders. You have a duty to your shareholders to operate the company both within the realm of the law but also within the ethical realm. And even Milton Friedman said that, which I think people sometimes forget. And I think we're moving towards that. I think we are recognizing that companies that are rapacious pay a price for it. Let's turn to regulation enforcement for a moment. As you well know, only one individual was sent to jail in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Why does it seem that so few financial executives are held to account? I couldn't agree with you more that this is puzzling and, in my view, uh, unacceptable. I mean, if you go back in the 1980s, we had a savings and loan crisis, and over 600 executives were prosecuted during that period of time. Here we are the biggest financial crisis in 100 years, and the number of people who have actually gone to jail is almost none. And the arguments made are, well, you know, it's not obvious exactly what laws got got broken or whatever. And partially, I think that speaks to some of the issues that I've been raising, that modern finance is complicated, that you can create laws about X, but there may not be a law about Y. And if Y can be synthetically created so that it's the same as X, now the problem is, yeah, what this person did was completely unacceptable, but it's going to be very difficult to prosecute in the courts because the rule was written about X and they did Y. So one of the things it speaks to are the limits of laws. And it also speaks to the fact that if you are counting on the law to be the only mechanism that makes markets work, you're going to have problems because, by definition, the law is going to lag the markets. I also think in some cases, some of the cases that have not sent people to jail but I think should have get caught up in politics. One of the cases I do in my MBA classes, we talk about BNP Paribas that was um, paid a huge fine for essentially breaking sanctions that we had imposed as a country on Iran and 
the Sudan and, and places like that. You know, why didn't somebody there go to jail? Well, it's a French bank. We wanted the French to be allies. But whenever you do that, whenever people behave badly and nothing happens, it just incentivizes other people to view that the law is no power. And so I think we need to do two things. We need to really do better at being willing to go after people uh, and try and put them in jail. And we also have to instill in people a view that your obligations are bigger than that. Taking a step back for a moment, the quest to define what constitutes ethical behavior is indeed an ancient one. There are a number of approaches to define ethical behavior, whether it's religious, utilitarian, or consequentialist, You've proposed a more nuanced framework that focuses more on the motivation of the action. Can you expand on your argument a bit? I don't think there is any one way to define ethical frameworks, and I think there are a variety of ethical frameworks that people can choose. When I wrote my book or or when I teach, I, I don't actually say there's any one. But I do think you have to look at the outcome of what you do. And I think that people can be ethical following a wide variety of ethical frameworks. But... What I think the book is trying to do and what I try and do in teaching is to say, saying that there aren't any ethical dimensions is not the right answer. There are ethical dimensions. You may decide that, you know, the way you look at this, it doesn't violate your ethical dimension. And at least if you think about it, that's one part of it. You know, personally, I'm not a big fan of utilitarian approaches because I don't think it's easy to compare across individuals. So I'm not a big fan of that. I do think you have to bear in mind that oftentimes there can be unforeseen consequences. And if you say, well, the ends justify the means, that becomes problematic in, in my estimation. But I do think we have an obligation, for example, not to undermine markets. I think fairness is extremely important. And so I'm not sure that anyone has a monopoly on what the right ethical framework is, but I think it's important that you have one. Ethics is inherently about human nature. Thousands of years ago, Plato and Aristotle were musing about what it meant to be a virtuous person. We're still grappling with this question today. But what about artificial intelligence? You've suggested that perhaps as even more complex financial instruments are developed, we'll need to somehow institute artificial ethics. Can you walk me through some of your thoughts around this? I think this is one of the really intriguing issues down the road, and uh, it may be here, (laughs) and I'm not sure it's down the road. You know, when you think about high-frequency trading, that's become the norm in markets. And what that means is that you have machines that are busy putting in orders and, you know, buying and selling. And those machines are programmed to do that, right? The next generation of machines, which exist already, are machines that learn from the market and change their behavior. You know, in the first generation, they only did what the program told them to do, but now the program changes based upon what the machines are confronting. And then if the machine's objective, for example, is to make money, then it's not hard to see how the machine could try, for example, to enter into behaviors that are manipulating. So, for example, if you think about a problem in the market where this might arise, there's something called a stop order. So people can put stop orders in that says, the current price of this asset is $90, but if there's a market meltdown, I want out. 
So I want to put an order in that says, if the price ever gets to 80, sell this stock, right? You don't want to sell it now for 80 because the stock's at 90, right? So you don't want to do that. But if it ever gets to 80, you want to sell it. Well, you could think about machines that know that out there, there are all these little hidden orders. And the minute you hit a stop, suppose you can oscillate the price so that it'll trigger a stop order. Well, if there's one stop order there, there could be many stop orders there. And so what can happen is you could end up in a world where the strategy the machine decides will make the most money is to start oscillating the price through putting in orders, perhaps canceling, putting in canceling, make the price oscillate, trigger these stops, which will then do what? It'll cause the market to plunge. So back in 1987, one of the things that caused the market crash was something called portfolio insurance, which was a rather complicated form of stop orders. But what it meant was that when you hit a certain point, it would trigger more orders that would cause it to keep going and it could create cascades. I think that's not only possible, but likely in markets. So how do you stop that, right? Well, you can't just tell a machine, do whatever you want to make money, right? Because machines now are learning and they'll learn that volatility can trigger things, and so they would learn to do that. You know, in the old days, like last year, the SEC made firms responsible for the algos they wrote. So you can't write an algo that says, go do this. But if the machine is doing it, if it's a genetic algorithm where the machine is learning, you may not even know the machine is doing that, right? I mean, you don't know what the machine's doing. It started off, it looked like it was behaving, still buying and selling. You didn't realize that it's entering into things that for all practical purposes are market manipulation. So you have artificial intelligence, that is the machine is learning. It might have to be married to artificial ethics or you're gonna end up with markets that you know become really predators and prey. How exactly to do that is not immediately clear, but you know this is not a surprising issue because think about what they're trying to deal with with say self-driving cars, right? No one would think that it's okay to put a car out on the road that's self-driving that doesn't have some rules that say if you see you know a Girl Scout troop crossing the road, you get to run them down if they are in the middle of the road. You 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 don't do that. So I think just like any sort of automated structure now has to have complicated sets of rules. I think that the artificial intelligence in markets is going to cause us to think about this. And I think those rules are going to be essentially some form of ethics, that your job is to maximize profit, but you can't destroy the market. Your job is to try and, and minimize the execution costs of, of doing this trade but you can't raise volatility above a certain level, right? That, because those would be unfair. And so I think we're going to have to think carefully about how exactly do we do that? I have no idea. I'm working on it, but uh, it's tricky. Professor O'Hara, I have to ask about tennis. Can you tell us about your days on the court before you were writing market microstructure theory textbooks? So uh, I should be very clear that I did play tennis at Illinois um, for a while, uh, but um, I was a tennis player in the bad old days, which I would call uh, before Title IX. And I know that Title IX has its issues, but when I was a freshman at Illinois, uh, I tried out for the 
tennis team. And uh, I hadn't played in high school because my high school didn't have a tennis team, but I was lucky enough to grow up in the Chicago area and they had these park districts and the park districts played each other. So I'd played, you know, tennis at that level. And um, so I tried out for the Illinois team and, um, you know, I was lucky enough to make it. But to give you an idea of what it was like in those days, the uh, coach said, you know, I'm going to post the list of all the people who have made the team. And if your name is on the list, when you come to practice on money, Monday, bring $5 because that's the money we're going to use to pay for tennis balls this year. Meanwhile, the men's tennis team was in Hawaii over spring break. So I was a uh, D1 tennis player in the, um, in the beginning, in the pre-Title IX days, when most of us were not actually all that good, but we were kind of better than everybody else at the time. I didn't make the team my senior year because by then, even in that short period of time, Title IX gets passed uh, in the June after my freshman year. In even a short period of time, like two years, high school started to have women's sports. And, you know, all of a sudden you had these girls who had actually had coaching and knew what they were doing. So by senior year, I was retired, um, which is a good thing. And it turned out that uh, I was a much better squash player. And uh, so I became a squash player and I played squash here at Cornell for many, many years. The downside, those of you listening to this who are younger and think you're indestructible, uh, all that tennis and squash killed my knees. So at one point, I was looking at uh, knee replacements, and I was too young for them. So I thought about, um, you know, what sport could I use? And I realized I needed a sport that used someone else's knees. So I decided to become a show jumper. And uh, I've owned horses now for about 25 years. But now I'm getting too old for that, so I'm becoming. I'm, I'm really working on my golf game. Professor O'Hara, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks, Harrison. I think this is uh, uh, it's a, a fun thing to do, and uh, I really appreciate uh, you guys putting this together. For more from Professor O'Hara, pick up her latest book, Something for Nothing, Arbitrage and Ethics on Wall Street, available wherever books are sold or your local library. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Michael Brady, Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, Bernardo Espinosa, Serena Elavia, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tim. I'm your host, Harrison Job. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Pottington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomanko. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.